Story thirteen, part one of the best American humorous short stories by Alexander Jessup, editor. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Story thirteen, part one. Colonel Starbottle for the plaintiff, nineteen o one, by Bret Hart. From Harper's Magazine, March nineteen o one, republished in the volume Openings in the Old Trail, nineteen o two, by Bret Hart. Copyright nineteen o two by Houghton Mifflin Company, the authorized publishers of Bret Hart's complete works, reprinted by their permission. It had been a day of triumph for Colonel Starbottle, first for his personality, as it would have been difficult to separate the Colonel's achievements from his individuality, second for his oratorical abilities as a sympathetic pleader, and third for his functions as the leading counsel for the Eureka Ditch Company versus the State of California. On his strictly legal performances in this issue I prefer not to speak. There were those who denied them, although the jury had accepted them in the face of the ruling of the half-amused, half-cynical judge himself. For an hour they had laughed with the colonel, wept with him, been stirred to personal indignation or patriotic exultation by his passionate and lofty periods. What else could they do than give him their verdict? If it was alleged by some that the American Eagle, Thomas Jefferson, and the Resolution of Ninety-Eight had nothing whatever to do with the contest of a ditch company over a doubtfully worded legislative document, that wholesale abuse of the state attorney and his political motives had not the slightest connection with the legal question raised, it was nevertheless generally accepted that the losing party would have been only too glad to have the colonel on their side and colonel starbottle knew this as perspiring florid and panting he rebuttoned the lower buttons of his blue frock coat which had become loosed in an oratorical spasm and readjusted his old-fashioned spotless shirt frill above it as he strutted from the courtroom amidst the handshakings and acclamations of his friends. And here an unprecedented thing occurred. The colonel absolutely declined spiritous refreshment at the neighboring Palmetto Saloon, and declared his intention of proceeding directly to his office in the adjoining square. Nevertheless, the colonel quitted the building alone, and apparently unarmed, except for his faithful gold-headed stick, which hung as usual from his forearm. The crowd gazed after him with undisguised admiration of this new evidence of his pluck. It was remembered also that a mysterious note had been handed to him at the conclusion of his speech, evidently a challenge from the state attorney. It was quite plain that the colonel, a practised duellist, was hastening home to answer it. But herein they were wrong. The note was in a female hand, and simply requested the colonel to accord an interview with the writer at the colonel's office as soon as he left the court. But it was an engagement that the colonel, as devoted to the fair sex as he was to the code, was no less prompt in accepting. He flicked away the dust from his spotless white trousers and varnished boots with his handkerchief, and settled his black cravat under his Byron collar as he neared his office. 
He was surprised, however, on opening the door of his private office, to find his visitor already there. He was still more startled to find her somewhat past middle age and plainly attired. But the Colonel was brought up in a school of Southern politeness, already antique in the Republic, and his bow of courtesy belonged to the epoch of his shirt-frill and strapped trousers. No one could have detected his disappointment in his manner, albeit his sentences were short and incomplete. But the Colonel's colloquial speech was apt to be fragmentary incoherencies of his larger oratorical utterances. A thousand pardons for er uh, having kept a lady waiting, er uh, but but uh, congratulations of friends and er uh, courtesy due to them uh, interfered with though perhaps only heightened by a procrastination pleasure of uh, ha and the colonel completed his sentence with a gallant wave of his fat but white and well kept hand. Yes, I came to see you along of that speech of yours. I was in court. When I heard you getting it off on that jury, I says to myself, that's the kind of lawyer I want, a man that's flowery and convincing, just the man to take up our case. Ah, it's a matter of business, I see, said the Colonel, inwardly relieved, but externally careless, and, um, uh, may I ask the nature of the case? Well, it's a breach of promise suit, said the visitor calmly. If the Colonel had been surprised before, he was now really startled, and with an added horror that required all his politeness to conceal. Breach of promise cases were his peculiar aversion. He had always held them to be a kind of litigation which could have been obviated by the prompt killing of the masculine offender, in which case he would have gladly defended the killer. But a suit for damages—damages! with the reading of love-letters before a hilarious jury in court, was against all his instincts. His chivalry was outraged, his sense of humour was small, and in the course of his career he had lost one or two important cases through an unexpected development of this quality in a jury. The woman had evidently noticed his hesitation, but mistook its cause. "'It ain't me, but my darter!' The colonel recovered his politeness. "'Ah! I am relieved, my dear madam. I could hardly conceive a man ignorant enough to, um, throw away such evident good fortune, or base enough to deceive the trustfulness of womanhood, matured and experienced only in the chivalry of our sex.' Ah. The woman smiled grimly. "'Yes, it's my daughter, Zadie Hooker, so you might spare some of them pretty speeches for her before the jury. The colonel winced slightly before this doubtful prospect, but smiled. Ah, yes, uh, certainly, the jury, but, uh, my, my dear lady, need we go as far as that? Cannot this affair be settled uh, out of court? Uh, could not this uh, individual be admonished, told that he must give satisfaction, personal satisfaction, for his dastardly conduct to a near relative or, or even valued personal friend. The uh, arrangements necessary for that purpose I, I myself would undertake. He was quite sincere. Indeed, his small black eyes shone with that fire which a pretty woman or an affair of honour could alone kindle. 
The visitor stared vacantly at him and said slowly, "'What good is that going to do us?' "'Compel him to uh, perform his promise,' said the Colonel, leaning back in his chair. "'Catch him doing it!' said the woman scornfully. "'No, that ain't what we're after. We must make him pay. Damages, and nothing short of that.' The Colonel bit his lip. "'I suppose,' he said gloomily, "'you have documentary evidence, uh, written promises, and protestations, uh, love-letters, in fact?' "'No, nary a letter. You see, that's just it, and that's where you come in. You've got to convince that jury yourself. You've got to show what it is, tell the whole story your own way. Lord, to a man like you, that's nothing!' Startling as this admission might have been to any other lawyer, Starbottle was absolutely relieved by it. The absence of any mirth-provoking correspondence, and the appeal solely to his own powers of persuasion, actually struck his fancy. He lightly put aside the compliment with a wave of his white hand. "'Of course,' said the Colonel confidently, there is strongly presumptive and cooperative evidence. Uh, perhaps you can give me a, a brief outline of the affair? Zadie can do that straight enough, I reckon, said the woman. What I want to know first is, can you take the case? The colonel did not hesitate. His curiosity was piqued. I certainly can. I have no doubt your daughter will put me in possession of sufficient facts and details to constitute what we call a brief. She can be brief enough, or long enough, for the matter of that, said the woman, rising. The colonel accepted this implied witticism with a smile. And when may I have the pleasure of seeing her? he asked politely. Well, I reckon as soon as I can trot out and call her. She's just outside, meandering in the road, kinder shy, you know, at first. She walked to the door. The astounded colonel nevertheless gallantly accompanied her as she stepped out into the street and called shrilly, "'You, Sadie!' A young girl here apparently detached herself from a tree and the ostentatious perusal of an old election poster, and sauntered down towards the office door. Like her mother she was plainly dressed. Unlike her, she had a pale, rather refined face, with a demure mouth and downcast eyes. This was all the colonel saw as he bowed profoundly and led the way into his office, for she accepted his salutations without lifting her head. He helped her gallantly to a chair, on which she seated herself sideways, somewhat ceremoniously, with her eyes following the point of her parasol as she traced a pattern on the carpet. A second chair offered to the mother, that lady, however, declined. "'I reckon to leave you and Zadie together to talk it out,' she said. Turning to her daughter, she added, "'Jest you tell em all, Zadie,' and before the colonel could rise again, disappeared from the room. In spite of his professional experience, Starbottle was for a moment embarrassed. The young girl, however, broke the silence without looking up. "'Adonorum K. Hotch kiss.' she began, in a monotonous voice, as if it were a recitation addressed to the public. First began to take notice of me a year ago. Arter that, off and on—' uh, "'One moment,' interrupted the astounded colonel. "'Do you mean Hotchkiss, the president of the Ditch Company?' 
he had recognized the name of a prominent citizen—a rigid, ascetic, taciturn, middle-aged man—a deacon—and, more than that, the head of the company he had just defended. It seemed inconceivable. "'That's him,' she continued, with eyes still fixed on the parasol, and without changing her monotonous tone, "'off and on ever since. Most of the time at the Free Will Baptist Church, at morning service, prayer meetings, and such, and at home, outside, or in the road.' "'Is it this gentleman, Mr. Adoniram K. Hotchkiss?' who er uh, promised marriage stammered the colonel yes the colonel shifted uneasily in his chair most extraordinary for uh, you see my dear young lady uh, this becomes a most delicate affair that's what ma said returned the young woman simply yet with the faintest smile playing around her demure lips and downcast cheek i mean said the colonel with a pained yet courteous smile that this er uh, gentleman is in fact uh, one of my clients that's what ma said too and of course your knowing him will make it all the easier for you said the young woman a slight flush crossed the colonel's cheek as he returned quickly and a little stiffly on the contrary it might make it impossible for me to uh, act in this matter the girl lifted her eyes the colonel held his breath as the long lashes were raised to his level even to an ordinary observer that sudden revelation of her eyes seemed to transform her face with subtle witchery they were large brown and soft yet filled with an extraordinary penetration and prescience they were the eyes of an experienced woman of thirty fixed in the face of a child. What else the colonel saw there, heaven only knows. He felt his inmost secrets plucked from him, his whole soul laid bare, his vanity, belligerency, gallantry, even his medieval chivalry, penetrated, and yet illuminated in that single glance. And when the eyelids fell again, he felt that a greater part of himself had been swallowed up in them. I beg your pardon he said hurriedly i mean this matter may be arranged uh, amicably my interest with and uh, as you wisely say my er knowledge of my client uh, mr hotchkiss may uh, effect a compromise and damages said the young girl readdressing her parasol as if she had never looked up the colonel winced and uh, undoubtedly compensation if you do not press a fulfilment of the promise unless he said with an attempted return to his former easy gallantry which however the recollection of her eyes made difficult it is a question of um, the affections which said his fair client softly if you still love him explained the colonel actually blushing zaidee again looked up again taking the colonel's breath away with eyes that expressed not only the fullest perception of what he had said but of what he thought and had not said and with an added subtle suggestion of what he might have thought that's tellin she said dropping her long lashes again 
the colonel laughed vacantly. Then, feeling himself growing imbecile, he forced an equally weak gravity. Uh, pardon me, I understand there are no letters. May I know the way in which he formulated his declaration and promises? Hymn books, said the girl briefly. I beg your pardon, said the mystified lawyer. Hymn books, marked words in them with pencil, and passed them on to me, repeated Zadie, like love, dear, precious, sweet, and blessed, she added, accenting each word with a push of her parasol on the carpet. Sometimes a whole line out of Tate and Brady, and Solomon's song, you know, in Sitch. I believe, said the colonel loftily, that the uh, phrases of sacred psalmody lend themselves to the language of the affections, but in regard to the distinct promise of marriage, was there no other expression? Marriage service in the prayer-book, lines and words out of that, all marked, said Zadie. The colonel nodded naturally and approvingly. Very good. Were others cognizant of this? Were there any witnesses? Of course not, said the girl. Only me and him. It was generally in church time, or prayer meeting. Once, in passing the plate, he slipped one of them peppermint lozenges with the letters stamped on it, I love you, for me to take. The colonel coughed slightly. And uh, you have the lozenge? I ate it, said the girl simply. Ah, said the colonel. After a pause, he added delicately, but uh, were these attentions uh, confined to uh, uh, sacred precincts? Did he meet you elsewhere? Euster pass our house on the road, returned the girl, dropping into her monotonous recital, and Euster signal. Ah, uh, signal, repeated the colonel approvingly. Uh, yes, he'd say uh, corral, and I'd say caree, something like a bird, you know. Indeed, as she lifted her voice in imitation of the call, the colonel thought it certainly very sweet and bird-like, at least as she gave it. With his remembrance of the grim deacon, he had doubts as to the melodiousness of his utterance. He gravely made her repeat it. And uh, after that signal, he added suggestively, he'd pass on, said the girl. The colonel coughed slightly and tapped his desk with his penholder. Were there any endearments or caresses or such as uh, taking your hand or clasping your waist, he suggested, with a gallant yet respectful sweep of his white hand and bowing of his head. A slight pressure of your fingertips and the changes of a dance? Uh, I mean, he corrected himself with an apologetic cough, in the passing of the plate? No, he was not what you'd call fond, returned the girl. Ah, Adoniram K. Hotchkiss was not fond in the ordinary acceptance of the word, said the colonel, with professional gravity. She lifted her disturbing eyes, and again absorbed his in her own. She also said yes, although her eyes, in their mysterious prescience of all he was thinking, disclaimed the necessity of any answer at all. 
He smiled vacantly. There was a long pause. On which she slowly disengaged her parasol from the carpet pattern and stood up. I reckon that's about all, she said. Uh, yes, but uh, what well, one moment, said the colonel vaguely. He would have liked to keep her longer, but with her strange premonition of him he felt powerless to detain her, or explain his reason for doing so. He instinctively knew she had told him all. His professional judgment told him that a more hopeless case had never come to his knowledge. Yet he was not daunted, only embarrassed. No matter, he said vaguely. Of course I shall have to consult with you again. Her eyes again answered that she expected he would, but she added simply, When? In the course of a day or two, said the Colonel quickly, I will send you word. She turned to go. In his eagerness to open the door for her, he upset his chair, and with some confusion that was actually youthful, he almost impeded her movements in the hall, and knocked his broad-rimmed Panama hat from his bowing hand in a final gallant sweep. Yet as her small, trim, youthful figure, with its simple leghorn straw hat confined by a blue bow under her round chin, passed away before him, she looked more like a child than ever. The colonel spent that afternoon in making diplomatic inquiries. He found his youthful client was the daughter of a widow who had a small ranch on the crossroads, near the new Free Will Baptist Church, the evident theatre of this pastoral. They led a secluded life, the girl being little known in the town, and her beauty and fascination apparently not yet being a recognized fact. The colonel felt a pleasurable relief at this, and a general satisfaction he could not account for. His few inquiries concerning Mr. Hotchkiss only confirmed his own impressions of the alleged lover, a serious-minded, practically abstracted man, abstentive of youthful society, and the last man apparently capable of levity of the affections or serious flirtation. The colonel was mystified, but determined of purpose, whatever that purpose might have been. The next day he was at his office at the same hour. He was alone, as usual, the colonel's office really being his private lodgings, disposed in connecting rooms, a single apartment reserved for consultation. He had no clerk, his papers and briefs being taken by his faithful body-servant and ex-slave, Jim, to another firm who did his office work since the death of Major Stryker, the Colonel's only law-partner who fell in a duel some years previous. With a fine constancy, the Colonel had retained his partner's name on his door-plate, and, it was alleged by the superstitious, kept a certain invincibility also through the manes of that lamented and somewhat feared man. The Colonel consulted his watch, whose heavy gold case still showed the marks of a providential interference with a bullet destined for its owner, and replaced it with some difficulty and shortness of breath in his fob. At the same moment he heard a step in the passage, and the door opened to Adoniram K. Hotchkiss. The colonel was impressed. He had a duelist's respect for punctuality. 
The man entered with a nod and the expectant, inquiring look of a busy man. As his feet crossed that sacred threshold, the Colonel became all courtesy. He placed a chair for his visitor and took his hat from his half-reluctant hand. He then opened a cupboard and brought out a bottle of whiskey and two glasses. Uh, er, slight refreshment, Mr. Hotchkiss, he suggested politely. I never drink, replied Hotchkiss, with a severe attitude of a total abstainer. Ah, uh, uh, not the finest bourbon whiskey, selected by a Kentucky friend? No? Pardon me. A cigar, then, the mildest Havana? I do not use tobacco nor alcohol in any form repeated Hotchkiss aesthetically. I have no foolish weaknesses. The Colonel's moist, beady eyes swept silently over his client's sallow face. He leaned back comfortably in his chair, and half-closing his eyes as in dreamy reminiscence, said slowly, "'Your reply, Mr. Hotchkiss, reminds me of a singular circumstance that er, uh, occurred, in point of fact, at uh, the St. Charles Hotel, New Orleans. Pinky Hornblower, personal friend, invited Senator Doolittle to join him in a social glass. Received, singularly enough, reply similar to yours. Don't drink nor smoke, said Pinky. Gad, sir, you must be mighty sweet on the ladies. Ha! The Colonel paused long enough to allow the faint flush to pass from Hotchkiss' cheek, and went on, half closing his eyes. I allow no man, sir, to discuss my personal habits, said Doolittle, over his shirt-collar. Then I reckon shootin' must be one of those habits, said Pinky, coolly. Both men drove out on the Shell Road back of cemetery next morning. Pinky put bullet at twelve paces through Doolittle's temple. Poor Doo never spoke again. Left three wives and seven children, they say. Two of em black. I got a note from you this morning, said Hotchkiss, with badly concealed impatience, I suppose in reference to our case. You have taken judgment, I believe. The colonel, without replying, slowly filled a glass of whiskey and water. For a moment he held it dreamily before him, as if still engaged in gentle reminiscences called up by the act. Then, tossing it off, he wiped his lips with a large white handkerchief and, leaning back comfortably in his chair, said, with a wave of his hand, "'The interview I requested, Mr. Hotchkiss, concerns a subject which I may say is, um, um, at present not of a public or business nature, although later it might become, um, both. It is an affair of some, uh, delicacy.' The colonel paused, and Mr. Hotchkiss regarded him with increased impatience. The colonel, however, continued with unchanged deliberation. It concerns a young lady, a beautiful, high-souled creature, sir, who, apart from her personal loveliness, uh, I may say, is of one of the first families of Missouri, and uh, not remotely connected by marriage with one of... Um, uh, my boyhood's dearest friends. The latter, I grieve to say, was a pure invention of the Colonel's, an oratorical addition to the scanty information he had obtained the previous day. The young lady, 
he continued blandly, "enjoys the further distinction of being the object of such attention from you as would make this interview really a confidential matter—er—among friends and—er—relations in present and future. I need not say that the lady I refer to is Miss Zaidee Juno Hooker, only daughter of Elmira Ann Hooker, relict of Jefferson Brown Hooker, formerly of Boone County, Kentucky, and latterly of um, Pike County, Missouri." The sallow, ascetic hue of Mr. Hotchkiss' face had passed through a livid and then a greenish shade, and finally settled into a sullen red. "'What's all this about?' he demanded roughly. The least touch of belligerent fire came into Starbottle's eyes, but his bland courtesy did not change. "'I believe,' he said politely, "'I have made myself clear as between a gentleman, though perhaps not as clear as I should to a jury.' Mr. Hotchkiss was apparently struck with some significance in the lawyer's reply. "'I don't know,' he said in a lower and more cautious voice, "'what you mean by what you call my attentions to any one.' or how it concerns you. I have not exhausted half a dozen words with the person you name, have never written her a line, nor even called at her house." He rose with an assumption of ease, pulled down his waistcoat, buttoned his coat, and took up his hat. The Colonel did not move. I believe I have already indicated my meaning in what I have called your attentions," said the Colonel blandly, and given you my concern for speaking as a mutual friend. As to your statement of your relations with Miss Hooker, I may state that it is fully corroborated by the statement of the young lady herself in this very office yesterday. Then what does this impertinent nonsense mean? Why am I summoned here?" said Hotchkiss furiously. Because, said the Colonel deliberately, that statement is infamously, yes, damnably, to your discredit, sir. Mr. Hotchkiss was here seized by one of those important and inconsistent rages which occasionally betray the habitually cautious and timid man. He caught up the Colonel's stick, which was lying on the table. At the same moment the Colonel, without any apparent effort, grasped it by the handle. To Mr. Hotchkiss' astonishment, the stick separated in two pieces, leaving the handle and about two feet of narrow, glittering steel in the Colonel's hand. The man recoiled, dropping the useless fragment. The Colonel picked it up, fitting the shining blade in it clicking the spring, and then rising, with a face of courtesy, yet of unmistakably genuine pain, and with even a slight tremor in his voice, said gravely, "'Mr. Hotchkiss, I owe you a thousand apologies, sir, that uh, a weapon should be drawn by me, even through your own inadvertence, under the sacred protection of my roof.' and upon an unarmed man. I beg your pardon, sir, and I even withdraw the expressions which provoked that inadvertence. 
nor does this apology prevent you from holding me responsible, personally responsible, elsewhere for an indiscretion committed in behalf of a lady, my uh, client. Your client? Do you mean you have taken her case? You, the counsel for the Ditch Company? said Mr. Hotchkiss, in trembling indignation. "'Having won your case, sir,' said the Colonel coolly, "'the uh, usages of advocacy do not prevent me from espousing the cause of the weak and unprotected.' "'We shall see, sir,' said Hotchkiss, grasping the handle of the door, and backing into the passage. "'There are other lawyers who—' uh, "'Permit me to see you out,' interrupted the Colonel, rising politely. "'We'll be ready to resist the attacks of blackmail,' continued Hotchkiss, retreating along the passage. "'And then you will be able to repeat your remarks to me in the street,' continued the Colonel, bowing as he persisted in following his visitor to the door. But here Mr. Hotchkiss quickly slammed it behind him, and hurried away. The Colonel returned to his office, and, sitting down, took a sheet of letter-paper bearing the inscription, Starbottle and Stryker, Attorneys and Counselors, and wrote the following lines. Hooker versus Hotchkiss. Dear Madam, having had a visit from the defendant in above, we should be pleased to have an interview with you at 2 p.m. tomorrow, your obedient servants, Starbottle and Stryker. This he sealed and dispatched by his trusted servant Jim, and then devoted a few moments to reflection. It was the custom of the Colonel to act first, and justify the action by reason afterwards. He knew that Hotchkiss would at once lay the matter before rival counsel. He knew that they would advise him that Miss Hooker had no case, that she would be non-suited on her own evidence, and he ought not to compromise, but be ready to stand trial. He believed, however, that Hotchkiss feared that exposure, and although his own instincts had been at first against that remedy, he was now instinctively in favour of it. He remembered his own power with a jury. His vanity and his chivalry alike approved of this heroic method. He was bound by the prosaic facts. He had his own theory of the case, which no mere evidence could gainsay. In fact, Mrs. Hooker's own words that he was to tell the story in his own way actually appeared to him an inspiration and a prophecy. Perhaps there was something else, due possibly to the lady's wonderful eyes, of which he had thought much. Yet it was not her simplicity that affected him solely. On the contrary, it was her apparent intelligent reading of the character of her recreant lover, and of his own. Of all the Colonel's previous light or serious loves, none had ever before flattered him in that way and it was this combined with the respect which he had held for their professional relations that precluded his having a more familiar knowledge of his client through serious questioning or playful gallantry i am not sure it was not part of the charm to have a rustic femme incomprise as a client Nothing could exceed the respect with which he greeted her as she entered his office the next day. He even affected not to notice that she had put on her best clothes, 
and he had no doubt appeared as when she had first attracted the mature yet faithless attentions of Deacon Hotchkiss at church. A white virginal muslin was belted around her slim figure by a blue ribbon, and her leghorn hat was drawn around her oval cheek by a bow of the same color. She had a southern girl's narrow feet, encased in white stockings and kid slippers, which were crossed primly before her as she sat in a chair supporting her arm by her faithful parasol planted firmly on the floor. A faint odor of southernwood exhaled from her, and, oddly enough, stirred the colonel with a far-off recollection of a pine-shaded Sunday school on a Georgia hillside, and of his first love, aged ten, in a short starched frock. Possibly it was the same recollection that revived something of the awkwardness he had felt then. He, however, smiled vaguely, and, sitting down, coughed slightly, and placed his fingertips together. I have had an uh, interview with Mr. Hotchkiss, but I uh, regret to say there seems to be no prospect of uh, compromise. He paused, and to his surprise her listless company face lit up with an adorable smile. Of course, catch him, she said. Was he mad when you told him? She put her knees comfortably together and leaned forward for a reply. End of Story 13, Part 1